You see, God's original design before the fall in Genesis 3 was for man to be immortal, to live forever. So these digressing years, they're just another reminder of the impact, the fallout of Adam's original sin. It's impacted all of creation, even our lifespans. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Let's pray together. Lord, the grass withers, the flower fades, but your word stands firm forever. We thank you for that truth this morning. We ask now that you would illuminate this text for your glory and our good, that you would encourage our hearts and point us to Christ, who is our only sufficient Savior. So we ask now that you would instruct us and teach us by the Holy Spirit, and we need your help to focus intently on your word. And so we ask that you would do that work in us today. In Christ's name, amen. Well, just as the Apostle Paul is about to wrap up his groundbreaking letter to Rome. We read it and studied it last year, the book of Romans, which if you're new to Christianity, I really encourage you to study and marinate, meditate on the book of Romans. But at the end of Romans chapter 15, verse four, Paul says this. He says, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance and the encouragement uh, taught in the scriptures, they, might, uh, they provide we might have hope. Imagine that. Everything that was written in the past was recorded in order to teach us that the endurance and the encouragement uh, in the Old Testament, written centuries ago, would provide hope for us in the here and now, even in 2022. So the narratives in the Old Testament, more specifically, those narratives we find in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and more specifically, the book of Genesis, and even within the book of Genesis, the, the genealogies in the book of Genesis, Paul says these are not aimless diatribes or genealogies that careen wildly or aimlessly like a car with no driver down a dead-end street. He says, no, these are actually written for us, to give us hope, to give us endurance, to give us encouragement. Not only is this historically real and true and was, was experienced by real people, but this also can give us hope many centuries later. And that's, that's what brings us to the text before us. What is the purpose for this genealogy in Genesis chapter 11? Is this just a list of names and that's all? I mean, we have lots of pregnant moms here in our church. If you're thinking of a baby name, is this just a helpful suggestion list? Is that all this is? Well, we've been studying as a church the book of Genesis for the last few uh, weeks and months, and last week we studied the first half of chapter 11. And in that text, we saw the, the rapid digression of the descendants of Noah. We found that they were disobedient to God's commands. We saw that Noah's offspring and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their ultimate descendants were continuing to rebel and revolt against Yahweh ever since they had in the garden. In fact, when we looked last week at the Tower of Babel or the Tower of Babylon, they were seeking there in that city to build themselves up, to make themselves 
a name. And so God comes down, we learn, and he confuses their language, and then he scatters them to fulfill what he originally commanded them to do, which was to fill the earth and to scatter abroad. They were unwilling to do that, and so God had to accomplish it through judgment. But this seeming deviation that these men decided in their own counsel to to do, this deviation from God's plan, from God's will, that in no way thwarted the purposes of God. And in fact, that's true throughout scripture. When Job was standing before the Lord dressed as a man, he answers God in humility and perspective. And in Job 42.2, we have a very profound statement from Job who had learned this by experience, not by theory. Job 42.2, Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God can do all things, amen? And God's purpose will stand. Nothing that God intends can be thwarted even by our sinful rebellion. You can put all of mankind together to seek a name for themselves and God will still accomplish his glorious purposes. In fact, I think it's insightful that man had sought to make a name for themselves. We learned last week the word name is the Hebrew word shem. They wanted to make a shem for themselves. And what does God do? God, in the second half of chapter 11, we see these are the generations of Shem, of God's Shem. And so as we take this list of nations from chapter 10, today we are going to zoom in our focus on one family line, on one descendant, on a particular chosen person and chosen people who would become the children of the promise. One person said, out of the ruins of two great cities, the city of Cain and the city of Babylon, God has preserved his promised seed. From here on out, we've been in Genesis all the way up to this point, to chapter 11. From here on out, the book of Genesis will follow this particular line. The line of Shem down through the descendant, Abram, who eventually is known to us as Abraham. And we'll see in these next few weeks and months how Abraham was called out of all the nations which scattered from Babel to be blessed by God in a covenant relationship and how God uh, will have Abraham respond to him by faith. God's gonna call him, we'll see some of that today, and Abraham responds in faith. And because of that, all who place their faith in Yahweh are rightly sons of Abraham. Abraham is the father not only of the Jews physically, but all spiritual sons and daughters by faith. So we're gonna see this morning, if you're taking notes, we like to outline the text a little bit and break it into more uh, you know, smaller sections. So we're gonna see really all of the descendants of Shem in the first section, verses 10 through 26. Ian, I thought you did a great job. We're gonna, we're gonna read through those briefly and get some of the name meanings and some other things to point out. We're gonna see the designated line, secondly, in verses 27 through 30. Again, zooming into Terah and Abram. And then we're gonna see, surprisingly, in verses 31 and 32, a diversion or a detour in Haran. So, even in a genealogy, the text this morning reveals the gospel in the person and work of Christ. And my prayer is that we as followers of Christ would see how this text can bring endurance and encouragement to us. And if you're here and you are not yet a follower of Christ, you're, you've been invited by a friend, uh, you're not a believer, you're just here 
among us. We are thankful that you're here today, and we pray that today you would receive Christ as Savior and Lord. So let's begin with this first section, the descendants of Shem, starting in verse 10. It said, these are the generations of Shem. Please circle that word generations. Uh, now, we use the word generations flippantly. We have the millennial generation, the exennials. We have the boomers. We have all these different names, but this is a word toledot or toledoth. This is a Hebrew word that actually always marks the beginning of a new major season, major section, or a genealogy. And there's actually 10 distinct toledot or generation sections in the book of Genesis. We've already covered this, but just as a way of review on the screen, a few examples. Chapter 5, verse 1, we saw the generations of Adam. And then in 6, 9 of Noah, we saw the sons of Noah. Here, the generations of Terah. And look how long we're going to be here. We're going to be in this section, this generation, the, uh, the offspring, the time of Terah, until chapter 25. Then we'll get to the generations of Isaac, and then in 37, we'll get to Jacob and his offspring. Uh, mainly, we look at Joseph. So that means we are now heading into a new section in Genesis that will take us through the 25th chapter. This is all about Terah and Abram. Now, there's supposedly 10 names here, and some people believe they're organizing the genealogy to have exactly 10 names, uh, and then when we see in the genealogy in uh, Matthew and Luke, there's uh, a distinction there of making everything even. Uh, so we have 10 names, ostensibly from Shem to Abram. But in Luke chapter 3, we have another name in here. We have the name Canaan, but it's spelled C-A-I-N-A-N, not like Canaan, who's Ham's son. Totally different Canaan. And we learn that that's Shelah's father. So what we need to do is not say, oh, wait, there's... Uh, th this is incorrect. There's the wrong amount of guys, so the Bible's not real. Let's just uh, dismiss and let's go sin. That, that's not the idea that we want to have here. When we see father, uh, we have to understand that that can mean a literal father, like I'm a father of two children, but it can also mean an uh, a, uh, ancestor. Just as if you said Jesus is the son of David, that doesn't mean he literally was born from David and his wife, no. Uh, we would say he is a descendant. He's a descendant of David. So most scholars aren't concerned that this genealogy has to be exhaustive. In fact, we see that there are other sons and daughters throughout. Uh, they fathered so-and-so, and they had other sons and daughters. This genealogy, the important thing is that though other names may be exempt from this role, what's most important is that this is an unbroken line from Shem to Abram. So note verse, the rest of verse 10 when Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. So remember, they came off of the ark. They uh, set up an altar to Yahweh. And then uh, we made the case that they immediately began having children and that the earth was repopulated very quickly. So two years after the flood, Shem fathers Arpachshad. His name means a healer. So if you're taking note and you want to jot these into your Bible, I will give you the name meaning for each one of these. Arpachshad, his name means one who heals. Well, it says in verse uh, 12, when he had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. Now, Shelah's name means one who breaks the bondage. So his dad is one who heals. Or Canaan, his dad, is a, uh, his name means a purchaser. Remember, Canaan is read into Luke 3. 
So within these first three names, we have Shems, whose, whose name means renown. And then we have a healer. We have one who purchases and one who breaks the bondage. Very interesting. Uh, this, is, this is insightful. This is, this is exciting. So it says in verse 14, when Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. That's where we get the, the word Hebrew from, from Eber. The Eberites or the Hebrews. He lived 34 years and fathered Peleg. Now remember, we learned about Peleg in chapter 10. And his name means divide or uh, bringing division. And we made the argument there that Peleg's name is, is not necessarily when the earth was one continent, Pangea, and that's when it was, it was broken into many continents. We made the argument that Peleg was a contemporary of Babel. So the earth was divided by language, uh, and then that's where we see ethnicity uh, coming about nationality, but that was during Peleg's time. Peleg, his name means bringing division. Peleg lived 30 years, verse 18, and fathered Ru. Ru's name means a friend and a shepherd. Uh, Ru fathered Sarug. Again, moms, we've got a great name for you, Sarug. Sarug uh, lived uh, 30 years and fathered Nahor. Now, Sarug's name means a branch or a righteous branch. Nahor's name means the light. So again, I, I'm not trying to read into this, but this is, this is fascinating that the line of Messiah tells us that there will be a name of a healer, a purchaser, a bondage breaker, a man of strength who will bring division, a friend and a shepherd, a righteous branch. And then Nahor's name means the light. So very interesting. He had other sons and daughters. Verse 24, when Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. Terah's name means delay. And then it says, when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. We have already heard Haran, or uh, Nahor rather, but Abram's name means exalted father. Abraham is what his name is going to be changed into, which means exalted father of many. And then Haran's name means parched or desolate. Now, those are the name meanings, but did anyone notice anything particularly insightful about the ages of these men? Did you notice that the lifespan of mankind is decreasing steadily from 600-year-old Shem to just a little bit over 100 years when we get to Terah? Uh, one person said this in their commentary on the Old Testament. They said, here then, we see that the two catastrophes, the flood and the separation of the human race into nations, exerted a powerful influence in shorting the duration of life. The former, the flood, by altering the climate of the earth. The latter, by changing the habits of men. Because they were having children way later in life. But while the length of life diminished, the children were born proportionately earlier. Now, it's fascinating that the Bible is not the only place where there are claims of long lifespans uh, found. In fact, in the secular literature of several ancient cultures in antiquity, including the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Indians, the Chinese, they have an account of kings that had very long reigns and people, citizens who had very long lifespans. In fact, in the Sumerian king list, which most people argue came from the scriptures, adapted from the Bible. It mentions a flood account, and it gives a list 
of the reigns of kings before and after a flood with many long, uh, many long lifespans. When we look at the average ages of those who lived before the flood, so if we went back to Genesis 5, we would see that people are living a very long time. Uh, in fact, most of these people who lived because Adam lived so long, they were contemporaries of Adam or someone who knew Adam. In fact, if we look at the 10 patriarchs out, outside of Enoch, he walked with God and then he was no more. Those who preceded the flood lived an average of 912 years. That was the average. We have Lamech, the youngest. He only lived to 777. I mean, he's, he's young. He didn't make it that far. And then we have the oldest person in the scripture at 969 years. Here's a Bible trivia question. Who knows who lived the longest in the Bible? Yell it out. Wow, you guys are awesome. You are way better than first service. Uh, make sure you tell them that next week. We have the patriarchs from Noah, 950 years, to Abram, 175 years. In fact, just right after this, a few generations later, we have Moses writing Psalm 90. Yes, Moses wrote a psalm. And in Psalm 90, he says, our strength is 70 or 80 years. And so, Lord, teach us to number our days. In fact, if we plug the ages of chapter 11 into a graph scientifically, the, the ages of these men, we see, and I think we have it, we see an exponential uh, rate of decay. We have the same decay curve scientifically that you would, you would see if you exposed organisms to lethal or toxic substances or radiation. And so Answers in Genesis has a fascinating article we're going to post on the website, uh, Sermon Notes, but they say this. I'm just going to quote a uh, brief quote. They said, the fossil record reveals that prior to the flood, most of the earth had or appears to have had a tropical type of environment. Following the flood, there was cl clearly an environmental change resulting in an ice age that covered nearly 30% of the earth with ice primarily in the northern latitudes. And this, together with other changes following the flood, would have adversely affected lifespans. And so we see that in the genealogical record. We see these lifespans diminishing down to now. We see the typical life expectancy, 70, 80, with, an, with a, usually a max lifespan of 120. 969 years sounds impressive, but it falls far short of immortality. You see, God's original design before the fall in Genesis 3 was for man to be immortal, to live forever. So these digressing years, they're just another reminder of the impact, the fallout of Adam's original sin. It's impacted all of creation, even our lifespans. Now, let's examine this uh, generation of ter uh, Torah, the designated line, the second section, starting in verse 27. It says, now these are the generations of Torah. He fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. If you're taking note, Lot, his name means hidden or covered. We're going to see him causing a lot of ruckus in a few chapters. You could say that Lot was Abraham's lot in life, maybe. Yeah, I know, terrible. Please, just stop the puns. He's going to play a significant role in a few chapters. Um, and so if you read ahead, you'll see how Lot comes into play. We see in verse 28, Haran dying in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. This is a tragedy. This is a tragedy. Haran, the son of Terah, the brother of Abram, dies. This is something that most parents 
would say we never want to experience the death of our child. And yet that is sadly the state of many uh, believers and unbelievers. The sad state of having to bury a child. Many of you know what that's like. You've experienced that, that pain and that loss. Well, we don't want to overlook that. That happens. It says, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, I want you to circle that phrase, Ur of the Chaldeans. So some liberal scholars came along in, in the Enlightenment, uh, 1800s, and they said, you know what? That word Ur doesn't exist. There's no city named Ur of the Chaldeans. And so we think that this is a mistranslation. It should not be Ur, it should just be land. And so uh, he came out from, from the land of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans are the Babylonians. So the argument is this is modern day Iraq. Uh, Abram and his family were called out of just the land of Babylonia. Uh, now, for many decades, those who ascribe to higher criticism, that's where, by the way, it's coming back, sadly, but the idea is that I look with criticism at the scriptures and I will be the judge of the Bible. Is it true or not? I will be the final arbiter, the final judge. We, of course, know that that is the exact mirror opposite of the posture we're to have as believers. We don't judge the word of God. The word of God judges us. We are to allow the scripture rightly divided, rightly interpreted, rightly applied to inform our faith and doctrine and practice. And so, however, the higher critics came along and said, there is no error. Well, what's interesting, even though they called it a myth, in the mid-18 to late 1800s, some archeologists became fascinated with Iraq. They began to do excavations halfway between Baghdad and the coast of the Persian Gulf. And in the early 1900s, the British Museum funded this massive excavation of the area. Very large effort backed eventually by the University of Pennsylvania. And in 1934, they concluded the expedition. And during those 30 year, 30 year span or so, they uncovered an entire city in southern Iraq, which would have boasted over 200,000 people and was a very important Sumerian port city on the river. Now, as they were in this excavating work, they stumbled upon one of the most incredible and fascinating discoveries in archaeology. They discovered this incredible, sizable ziggurat. And this ziggurat, there it stands today, uh, they unearthed it. They, they dug it out. And as they dug it out, they realized this was a, a part of this was a temple to worship the moon. And all around and all over this ziggurat, there was an inscription that was repeated all over. And the inscription was Ur of the Chaldeans. Isn't that interesting? The liberal scholars were completely humbled and appropriately silenced, looking to see their own bias. And so Ur of the Chaldeans was a city uh, it's been discovered, and it, again, corroborates Scripture. We don't need to be afraid of archaeology. In fact, archaeology uh, always corroborates and not conflicts with the Scripture. So we should be excited when we read in the paper, if you still read papers, that there is uh, more discoveries taking place and more of these names that people say, oh, th that, that guy wasn't a historical ruler. Oh, actually, he was. Uh, and so greatly encouraging. Now, the family of Torah... They live in Ur of the Chaldeans, and they, almost like everyone else in Babylon, were idolaters. Abram lived in a family that wasn't necessarily a family that worshiped Yahweh. 
We learn this in other passages of scripture, like Joshua 24. If you're taking note, jot this down. Joshua 24, one and two says, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and he summoned the elders, the heads, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. This is a great a re-reading of the covenant and a re-presenting of the people of God before him. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. That was the family that Abraham found himself living among. This idolatry in the family will continue to prove to be a constant source of contention within his household. In fact, generations, three generations later, we're told that uh, in Genesis 31, Rachel will steal her father's household gods. Abraham would have been surrounded in Ur by moon worshipers. He would have been surrounded by those who looked up at the heavens, who studied the stars, who worshiped and, and made sacrifices to Marduk and other false gods. That was the context of Abraham's family. Spurgeon had a great perspective on this when he preached this text. And here's what he said. He said, Abram must come out from Ur of the Chaldees and all its associations of idolatry. And he must even leave his kindred and his father's house and walk before the Lord in separation unto prompt obedience and complete consecration. Thus in his separation unto God would be fulfilled the gracious purpose of the Most High. Didn't mention this in first service, but for many of us called out of maybe an idolatrous family, a family with a background that is not burst or rooted in faith in Christ. But here's what Spurgeon goes on to say. He says, the Lord's end and aim was to keep his truth alive in the world by means of a people who should be set apart for that service. And it was therefore essential that the person chosen to be the head of that family, the founder of that nation, should come right away from all connection with the corrupt world and walk apart with God. The chosen nation was to dwell alone and not to be numbered among the peoples. Now, verse 28 tells us that Haran has died, and this is a tragedy that leaves Lot without a father. And so what we see is that he is going to be brought into uh, this smaller uh, family. And so I, what we'll see with Lot is a consistent pattern of looking with the eyes and lusting and desiring the things of this world. Lot is a, is a picture of someone who we learned in 1 John 2. He has de the desires of the flesh, the, de the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. He pitches his tent towards Sodom. He sees that it's well watered. It's a plain that's worth raising a family in and becoming a part of the city. We'll see that as we study Lot. Lot to me seems to be a picture of someone who, a family reminder, someone who's in Israel but is not of Israel. Someone who is in the family, but they aren't necessarily in Christ. Parents, you can bring your, have your kids be a part of being in church, but that doesn't mean they're in Christ. We have to share the gospel to our children and not just assume by default they're gonna by osmosis just make mosey their way on into the kingdom. No, we have to share the gospel. We have to uh, allow our kids to know and see Christ in us. So Lot is maybe a picture of that. But we have Abram, we have Nahor, the remaining living sons of Terah, and they each take a wife. Abram's wife, we read, is Sarai, and that name means princess. Sarai is the princess, and Nahor marries his niece Milcah. 
uh, his, uh, her dad is Haran who has died. So Lot and Milcah are both without uh, a dad. And uh, Milcah's name means queen. So Abraham got the princess and Nahor got the queen. Well, her sister Iska's name means to see. And so you want to remember Nahor. We'll remember him in Genesis 22 when uh, the servant of Abraham goes to find a wife for his uh, son Isaac. He will find him in Nahor's family, Rebekah, the descendant of Nahor. So that's going to come back and be important. Now we come to verse 30. Again, we're looking at zooming into the line of Messiah. We've been wondering who's going to be the one who crushes the head of the serpent. And we come to verse 30. It says, now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Well, that seems to be a problem. I mean, we've got the husband of Sarai, whose name means exalted father. And he is married to a woman who can't have children. And so this seems to be trouble. And how can the coming Messiah come through the line of Abram and Sarai if she's unable to have children? Well, we see with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And so we'll just, that's just a little note, and we'll see this later, that all of the patriarchs seem to have trouble with conception, and yet God is able uh, to do this. So uh, let's look at this final section, the diversion of Haran. I just want to spend a minute on this because I find this to be fascinating. It says in verse 31, Terah took Abram his, wife, uh, his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, I want to make the argument to you this morning that something profound takes place between verses 30 and 31. In some respect, God appears to Abraham or Abram at this time, and calls him to go out from this land, from Ur of the Chaldeans, and out from his family to the land that God would show him. We aren't sure if this, is, if this was led by Abram and Terah followed suit. In fact, we actually read the opposite in verse 31. It says, Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, and they went forth together. So it may have been that Abram had this call from God. He shares it with his dad, and his dad says, let's do that. Let's go for it. We don't know. Uh, we know that uh, Abraham would have understood the law of God written on his heart that was to come later. He still would have been one who honored father, and so they go, but then they settle. Now, what do we find in the New Testament is that uh, Stephen the deacon actually clarifies this sequence of events. So in Acts chapter 7, you want to jot those, these verses down. Verses 1 through 4, Stephen addresses Israel, and he says, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. So we turn the page to Genesis chapter 12. We read in verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. It's possible that that 
happens sequentially after chapter 11, but it also is possible that the now the Lord said is referring to now when the Lord said. When the Lord had called Abram out from Ur of the Chaldeans, this is what he said. We know later in Genesis 15, verse 7, that God reveals himself again to Abram and says, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. God was the one who had initiated this call, who had initiated uh, this invitation, this command for Abram to be obedient and to step out from this place in Babylon to make it to Canaan. So we don't know the circumstances of why they stopped, but we see that they didn't make the whole journey. In fact, if we were to show you a picture of a map, we see that they began down here in Ur of the Chaldeans, down here in Iraq. They make their way up. Uh, through this fertile crescent up into Haran, and then they wait there, they pause there. 500 miles to the northwest, but not completing the journey into Canaan. We're not sure why they stopped. Was it, was it perhaps his father, Terah, old in age? He's tired and says, I just, let's just stop the journey. Your old man is tired. Is that what happened? I mean, the irony's not lost on us. Terah's name means delay. Is that what's happening? Terah's slowing things down and delaying things. Maybe it was Lot. I mean, Lot's going to be a troublemaker. So maybe it was him. Maybe he looked around Haran and said, this is fabulous. Let's wait and hang out here. Was it Sarai, his wife? All the husbands say probably. It was probably his wife. She probably liked Haran and wanted to stay there. We don't know. But Haran was a thriving city, a commercial center, major trade route through the Mesopotamian Crescent. And it could have been that they said, we've come here this far. We've been obedient to the Lord. Let's just pause here. Let's wait here. Maybe Abram is trying to obey father and mother. And we're not going to presume to answer the question, why did they stop in Haran? That's not the purpose because the scripture is silent. We don't need to figure that out. But what we do know is that it's not Canaan. He stops in Haran. And once his father dies, he makes the final trek to Canaan. I think we can learn something from this. In fact, Spurgeon preached on this text and the title of his sermon was called Abram's Call, Halfway or All the Way? And Spurgeon said this. He said, Abram seems to be conquered not by open foes, but by compromising friends. And then he says this, to obey the Lord partially is to disobey him. If the Lord bids Abram to go to Canaan, he cannot fulfill that command by going to Haran. And he goes on to say this, you cannot keep God's command by doing something else which pleases you better. The essence of obedience lies in its exactness. Although something else may seem to you to be quite as good as the thing commanded, what has that to do with it? This is what God bids you. And to refuse the thing commanded, professing to substitute a better thing is gross presumption. You may not think it's so, but so it is, that half obedience is whole disobedience. Our kids are teenagers now, but we used to tell them when they were younger that we obey all the way, right away, with a joyful heart. We try to do that now, and they go, I know, with a joyful heart. They, they, they've heard it lots of times. But as we grow older, it's no different. When we obey the Lord, when we're given instruction by God, we obey completely. We obey immediately, and we obey without complaint. Half obedience this whole disobedience. I know there's another sermon there today, or sermon there, but not today. So what we'll see next week, thankfully, is that Abram doesn't camp out in Haran. After his dad dies, he finishes the obedient 
step of faith. He completes the distance. He goes into Canaan. And because of that obedience of faith, again, not perfect faith, but because of the obedience of faith, we read in Hebrews 11, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He wasn't seeking a city like man was in Babel. He wasn't seeking to hang out in Ur or in Haran. He wanted to ultimately seek a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now, because of that, Abraham, throughout the scriptures, is referred to as the friend of God. James 2.23 refers, refers him as the friend of God. Abraham is one of the central figures in all of human history. He's the figurehead for, for Judaism, for Islam, and for Christianity. He's mentioned in 16 books of the Old Testament and 11 books in the New, and eventually would be the father of our faith because we read in Luke 3, the most important genealogy, Jesus' genealogy, our Messiah, in Luke 3 says this. It says Jesus going down the line, was the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor. We trace the line of our Messiah back from Abraham to Jesus Christ. And that becomes the theme for the rest of Genesis. It becomes the theme for the rest of the Old Testament. And it becomes the theme for the rest of the scriptures. Now, as we move from creation to the new creation, I just want to focus our attention a little bit on the fact that God's ways are higher than our ways. God chose Abram. God called him. God's the one who plucked him out from Ur and led him. He didn't know where he was going. I'll show you where to go. And Abram may have intended to make the trek all the way to Canaan, but his life took an unexpected turn in Haran, and he was delayed. Now, I see this in Abram's life, and I see it in your life, and I see it in my life, and I'm actually encouraged. Why am I encouraged? I'm encouraged because our seeming delays are still a part of God's sovereign determinations. Almost every time I meet a believer who says, I think God's calling us to go overseas and to plant churches and to, to bring the gospel to unreached groups, or Someone says, I, I sense there's a faith venture ahead. We're, we're ready to get pregnant. We're going to do this. Or, you know what? We're, we're going to start this new job. We're going to go in faith and trust that this is the Lord. What I almost always see is an interruption or a delay in the timing of that plan. And yet, the interruption actually proves to be a part of God's gracious plan. Sometimes it's our inexperience, it's our inability, it's our immaturity that causes the detour or the delay to not complete the task God has put before us. But often the delays come like this in the form of circumstances that take us on an unexpected detour. But see, here's the hope, church. The hope is that even those seeming delays are a part of God's sovereign determination. God promises to work all things for good for those who love him who are called according to his purposes. So in Haran, Abraham would have kept his eyes fixed on what God had said to him. I'm calling you 
to a land I'll show you. I'm calling you to Canaan. He would have fixed his eyes on that. He wouldn't have settled for anything less than that. And we think about our Lord. You think about every person who needed to be ministered to on Jesus' path to Calvary. And then the scripture says he set his face like a flint. Jesus, our Lord, was not detoured or distracted by the seeming delays to the cross. Just think about it. Jesus didn't set up a ministry in Capernaum and just invite the leprous and the lame to come and just be healed. He could have established, hey, we're going to have the first century international healing ministry, and it's going to be based in, in Israel, and it's going to reach out worldwide for 70 or 80 years. That wasn't his mission. That would have helped a lot of people, but Jesus' purpose was clear. There was a greater need. There was a need that far outweighed or outlasted someone's need for their eyesight to be restored. Mankind didn't need a doctor. We needed a savior. And Jesus, he fixed his eyes on Calvary and nothing dissuaded him from that. And so this morning, as we look at this genealogy, we realize this points us ahead to the coming Messiah, born of a virgin, living a sinless life, dying the death that you and I deserved. All of human history culminates in Christ's life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his imminent return. And this morning, he's inviting you to come, to drink, to feast, to live, but also to die, to repent, to turn from your sin, to turn to Christ, to receive his finished work on your behalf. In just a few moments, we're gonna receive the communion elements together and we're gonna be passing out these trays that have two cups in them. And as we do this, we're remembering the body and the blood of our precious Redeemer. And we're asking you as Christ followers to partake of the bread and the cup as we spend a minute communing with our Lord. But if you're not a follower of Christ today, maybe you were just invited by a friend, we ask that you would abstain from this. The trays will be distributed. Just let them pass by you. What we're not doing is a group of us who are unconverted are just trying to take a religious sacrament to merit favor with God. No, this is a family meal that's by invitation only. And so if you've never come to the table of the Lord, repented of your sins, and placed all of your hope, all of your faith in Christ to save you, what he accomplished in your place. If you've never done that, we, we would ask you uh, to abstain. But as believers, those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, we have been forgiven of our sins, Christ invites us to come to the table, but he also invites us to obey, to follow him, not halfway, not half-heartedly, but to obey, to obey fully. The obedience of faith that Paul speaks of in Romans, the obedience of faith, that's not legalism. That's Christianity. We trust him, we love him, we obey him. Love, trust, and obey. That is what it looks like to follow Christ. We're, we're, we're to be obedient. His commands are not burdensome. Abraham was not a perfect follower, as we will see. As we turn the page next week and begin to see the father of faith, we see, wow. I'm so thankful that Abraham wasn't justified on the quality of his faith, but on the object of his faith. He believed in a holy God who justifies sinners by his grace. And so he invites you, that same God invites you to come and to trust and to obey. We're gonna sing this in a moment, but this hymn says it so well. It says, we're the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, 
my all. That's our prayer this morning for us as a church, that we would surrender our lives, not half-heartedly, that we would fully obey, that we would trust Christ and his finished work on our behalf. As we come to the table of the Lord this morning, we do so with gratitude and by his grace. So let's bow our heads and I'll pray for us this morning. Our gracious God and Savior, we thank you for taking our place at Calvary, for upholding the law to the letter, for bearing our sin to the fullest, for loving us to the utmost and to the end, and for taking the penalty of sin and death that we deserved. You are the Lord and King, for you died and you rose and you ascended on high to the right hand of glory. Jesus, you are highly exalted. Father, there is none like you. And Holy Spirit, we ask for strength to trust you, to love you, to obey you, for grace to believe, for the supply of your grace as we follow after you. For we're often in short supply, not because you aren't gracious to give, but we are often too sinful to receive. We're too proud to ask. We're too busy to consider. We're too lazy to acquire it. Lord, help us to see that our seeming delays are not your denials. They're not an interruption to your design. They're the very aim of it, that you are working within us patience and rest and hope as you did in Abram's life. May we follow you by faith and not fear. May we follow you with obedience and not wandering. And may we submit to you and not resist you. We pray that you would work in us that which is pleasing in your sight, in our own lives and in this church. Lord, may we as a community stand out as a city on a hill and as a light until the whole world hears. That's our prayer. For your glory and our good, we pray these things in Christ's name. for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.